Before I read the text that we're going to kind of concentrate on tonight, I, I wanted to wrap up something that I was saying last week. I, I think I proved to you that Moses, uh, in this scene, beginning in verse 11 of chapter 2 of Exodus, that Moses had already an inkling that he was the deliverer of Israel. And, and the point that I made is, he knew that he was the deliver, deliverer, but he did the right thing in the wrong way. Remember that? And... Um, he rides out and sees one of the, the Jews being mistreated, and he murders the Egyptian, and him thinking, you know, I'll deliver my people, you know. Um, right thing, but it was the wrong way. And I, and I, I said we've done that on numerous occasions uh, since then. Um, and it, one of my examples was the moral majority of the 70s and Jerry Falwell and that, and that whole thing about uh, cozying up to politicians. But there was another thing that, that we did, and I, I think I fell prey to it, maybe, maybe you too. It was what's called the church growth movement. Um, and it was, it was um, a desire to, I don't know, build churches uh, and, and using marketing principles to do so. Um, Fifth Avenue, um, uh, Hollywood. I remember listening to a series of tapes and this, this actually was said on these tapes, and it was talking about how to build a church. And uh, the, the speaker was saying that um, it, is, it was a study in Hollywood that Hollywood filmmakers knew that people's attention was lost every seven minutes. So that if you are going to make a movie, you've got to do something every seven minutes or so to, you know, to, to spike them, you know, to spike interest and, and to rally them and, and to get their attention. And so what this man was doing on this, on this tape was saying that sermons needed to have something re really interesting every seven minutes. Well, I, I have not um, successfully figured out how to do that. Um, I, I, tried it. <laughs> I find it difficult to do one in 30 minutes. But, um, but I mean, do you see the point? Using these, these, these marketing principles. And, and basically, ladies and gentlemen, it was, it was pure pragmatism saying, if it works, do it. And if this is something that works, then we'll incorporate it into our efforts to build churches and how we manage things, et cetera, et cetera. And that was the real, the real logo of the church growth movement. It was, it was the right thing done in a very wrong way. And, and I'm not so sure that, that I didn't fall prey to some of it as well. But I just wanted to give you those two examples of the, the whole moral majority and this church growth movement. Another, another, other examples of wanting to do the right thing, but just using the wrong principle. It, very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, about the only thing that I think this book says about church growth is this statement that's made at the end of Acts chapter 4. Um, no, Acts chapter 2, I think. Um, where they, they all gathered, um, uh, yes, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done among the apostles, and all who believed were together and all. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I think the only words that you get in this book concerning church growth has to do with this, this, this fixation and this concentration on uh, discovering what it is that God has said. Gang, um, I, I remind you of a, of a principial statement made in John 17, and this is eternal life, that they may know you. 
knowing him. That's it. <laughs> and so the, the church exists uh, to, to, to foster an increased sense of awareness of who he is, what he's like, and to call upon its people to draw near to him. All that other stuff um, is just doing the right thing the wrong way. Now, that's, that's all of that. I, I wanted to say that before we got to the text tonight, uh, which uh, really begins in verse uh, 16. Uh, let me read um, <clears throat> just the last sentence of 15. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. We'll come back to that. Now, the, the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home, their father, Ruel, uh, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell uh, with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. Uh, she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. <laughs> um, what, I, what I want to do tonight is, with your permission, is start... Well, actually, I didn't get your permission. So all in favor, say aye. aye. Okay, well, I have your permission. Uh, so with your permission, <clears throat> I want to start at the bottom of the text, and I want to work my way up to the top. I want, I want to start with these, these last three verses, 23, 24, and 25, and then we're going to finish up there really in verse 15. And the reason is, guys, um, well, one of the reasons, folks, if you didn't know it, you are at a Bible study. That's what this is. It's a Wednesday night Bible study. This is not a Wednesday night prayer meeting. Who prays? Jimmy. Um, but w this is not a prayer meeting. This is a Bible study. And I hope that there are things that you, that you gather from our study of the Bible together. Uh, and I hope you find these things to be oh so stimulating to your soul. But one of the things I hope also to advantage you with is insight as to how to study your Bible yourself. I hope that not only are you here um, being fed, I hope you are, uh, but I hope you're learning how to feed yourself as well. Uh, that's what this is about. So what I want to do is I want to I give you one of those little principles here in these last three verses, and I thought, well, this is the real boring part, so you really don't want to send people home after you just bored them to tears. So I thought I'd put it first, get the boring part out of the way, and then we're going to finish with something that I hope is not quite so boring. Okay? So that's why we're flipping the, the order here. Gang, <clears throat> look at those last three verses. During um, the king of Israel died, uh, people of Israel groaned, uh, they cried out for help. And then you come to this, this statement in verse 24 and 25. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. What do you do with that when you read that? I'm studying my Bible, you know, I got one of those, uh, you know, read the Bible through in a year, and I'm, I got it right here, Exodus 2, and, and I come to those things, and I see, wow, well, God heard, and God saw, and God remembered, and God knew. What, what do you do with that? 
How do you, how do you treat it? How do you understand it? How do you, what do you think about it? I mean, um, God remembered. Well, how am I supposed to understand that? I mean, did God forget something? Oh, foot, I should have had a V8. And, and he remembered, oh, okay, now I got it, now I got it. Um, we'll come to that in just a minute. But this language of he heard and he saw. Does God have ears? Does God have eyes? No, ladies and gentlemen, God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. But um, one of the things that the Bible does is gives us language, which is called anthropomorphic language. Um, anthropomorphic uh, language. Uh, you can see the word anthropos there, man, and then this morphe is man-like or similar. It's man-like language. Um, the Psalms are full of things like, um, give ear, O God, to my cry. Well, does God have ears? No, he doesn't. He doesn't have any ears, ladies and gentlemen. But if, <clears throat> pardon me, <clears throat> does God hear? Well, yes, he does. He hears. So to, to make it clear to us that God hears, what would the Bible have to use to make us understand that? It would have to use language that we understand. Oh, we understand ears. So the Bible gives ears to God. Not that he has them, but it communicates this ability to hear. Does he have eyes? Um, no. His eyes are too holy to even look upon iniquity. Well, he doesn't have eyes, but can he see? Yeah, he can. So to make me understand that God sees, what, did the Bible, what does the Bible do? It, get, it uses a word that, that is, is man-like, eyes. Oh, see, oh, okay, got it. That's anthropomorphic language, ladies and gentlemen. That's not to suggest in any way that God has ears and eyes. But it's, it's a condescension on the part of the Bible to help us understand who God is like. And, and by the way, all four of those verbs are, are telling you certain things about God. For instance, he remembered. Oh my, ladies and gentlemen, did God ever forget anything? But he thought based, and, and notice the text, he remembered the covenant he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He, he thought favorably of the covenant that he himself initiated and accomplishes and executes. You remember that whole Genesis 15 passage where the, Abra uh, that the covenant was made with Abraham and that smoking pit that goes through the pieces of the animal and all that business. <clears throat> and by the way, I should say this. This is kind of tacky of me. But if you're a dispensationalist, you're going to have real problems with this. Because in dispensationalism, Abraham and, Mo Abraham and Moses are in two different uh, dispensations. But that's not what it says here. God remembered the covenant that he made with Abraham, that covenant of grace. And although he could not find anything in me that would evoke his mercy, he could find something in himself. That covenant that he made. That covenant that he didn't depend on you to accomplish. He accomplished it himself. And in, in, in the terms of the covenant of grace, he remembered God's people. And then he moved in, in response to the commitment that he himself had made. <clears throat> then one other quick note. That word about, um, sorry, y'all. 
that word that he uses, and he knew. What in the world is that? And God saw, and God heard, and God remembered, and God knew. You're studying your Bibles, ladies and gentlemen, and you come to that sentence. What do you do with it? Is that just filler? Is that just a, a throwaway? No, ladies and gentlemen, it's not. You know, if you believe in the Bible the way I think you believe in the Bible, we believe in a verbal plenary inspiration. And when we say verbal, verbally inspired, that comes from a Latin word, verbum, which means word. Down to the very word. God knew. That's an important word. But folks, and, and again, here's, here's I, what I hope is a lesson in studying the Bible. You're, gang, if you're reading that and you come and say, no, I wonder what that means. Mm-hmm. Well, here's what you do. You have to go find out how the word is used throughout the Bible. And, Abraham, I mean, and Adam knew Eve and she conceived and bore Seth. Hmm, what's that all about? <coughs> the, the Hebrew term is yada. Abraham knew Eve. Uh, Genesis 19, uh, in that Sodom and Gomorrah scene, and uh, the men come to Sodom, <coughs> and the men of the city come and say, bring them out so that we might know them. We'd like to be introduced to them. Is that what they said? Is that what they meant? Um, 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 19. And Elkanah knew his wife Hannah, and she conceived. Well, what is that? Or Amos, um, we're five, I think. Of all of the nations of the world, only you, Israel, have I known. I've never heard of Ethiopia, says God. Is that what he meant? No, ladies and gentlemen, and that word to know does not mean to be in possession of some mental fact. It describes some kind of intimate relationship. And so when you come to the New Testament and you find words like foreknow, then you've got to understand them in the way that the term is used. Foreknow is to forelove. In here, God heard and he saw and he remembered and he knew. He remembered that he loved these people <clears throat> based on the commitments that he made in the covenant of grace. He could not find anything in me to love, but he could find something on the basis of the provisions of the covenant of grace to love me over. He knew me. He loved me. He set his love on me. Now, guys, that's the boring part. Um, Go back up to the other paragraph. Um, Moses flees, as you know. He goes to Midian. Well, where in the heck is Midian? Um, if you know anything about that geography over there, do you remember the Sinai Peninsula that's kind of that little thing that right down there? Well, it's just east of that, at least according to this map in my Bible that I'll show you if you're interested. Uh, but he flees to Midian. And who's Midian? Midian is one of the sons of Abraham that he had by his second wife, Keturah. Um, Genesis 25, 
2 or 12. Can't read my own writing. Um, Midian is a son of Abraham that he had by his, you know, Sarah is dead. Um, and this is his second wife, Keturah. The, the point is, over in Midian, since Midian is a son of Abraham, there may have been some kind of real religion over there. And we're told that Ruel is a priest. A priest of whom? Well, we're never told. But because of the connection of Midian and Abraham, father-son, we think that Ruel was a priest of Yahweh. Um, Moses is sitting there, and um, <clears throat> these daughters come out, and they're mistreated. And, and by the way, Ruel is called Jethro in uh, Exodus 18, um, same father-in-law. But anyway, uh, Ruel has seven daughters. One of them, his name is Zipporah, and, Mary, and Moses stands up and fights for them, and then marries one of them. He marries Zipporah, and they have a son by the name of Gershom. Um, and, um, and that's it. Let's close with prayer. Gang, go back up with me to verse 15. Now, gang, I am not the only lover of this book in this room. There's a lot of people who love this book in this room, and that makes my heart glad and makes me privileged to be your pastor. A lot of you love this book. Let's read verse 15. I mean, let me just read it to you. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. <laughs> You're studying your Bible. And you come to that sentence, and he sat down by a well. What in the world is that about? He sat down by a well. Why would the Holy Ghost of God see fit to include that sentence in this story. That's what captured my imagination, ladies and gentlemen. He sat down by a well. So what? He could have sat down by a tree or a valley or a rock. Doesn't matter. He sat down next to a well. But think with me, ladies and gentlemen. You thought you were the deliverer. You went out and killed somebody, and you got caught. And you got caught covering it up. And you hear that Pharaoh wants to kill you, and you run. You don't, I mean, you don't know about Ruel and his seven daughters and Zipporah that you're going to marry. You just run. And you sit down by a well. Now, gang, a lot of this is sanctified i hope imagination on my part but how would you feel disillusioned i blew it rejected well god is finished with me now boy i sure blew that 
And yet, ladies and gentlemen, he is exactly where God wanted him. Sitting down next to a well, and something is about to happen that is going to change the course of the history of mankind while he is sitting in a spot feeling sorry for himself. <laughs> you know, I, my wife was up in my office the other day and I told her, I said, you know, I don't know whether I should tell this story or not. And, she, and I told her what I was thinking about this little statement. And she said, well, I don't see why you shouldn't tell it. So my wife gave me permission. That means, nah. <clears throat> Guys, um, we graduated from seminary in 1975. Susie was eight months pregnant. We went in, uh, to Ocala, Florida, and we had all three of our children in Ocala, Florida. And this is the way Susie likes to say it. <clears throat> uh, we spent the next 10 years of our life, uh, and it was, um, well, she says it's, it was nine and a half years of the best years of our life. Unfortunately, we stayed 10 years because the last six months almost killed us. And, I, and, I, and that's not much of hyperbole in that. I mean, um, I, I went in, I, oh, I mean, I, I experienced things then that I had never experienced before. Um, I want you to know, <clears throat> um, I mean, Jimmy Latimer and I had a relationship and he offered me a job. And uh, I was not fired. I, I had no moral failings, except <laughs> if you can call pride a moral failing. I mean, all sin is basically a, a moral failing. But there was no woman, there was no porn, there was no money questions. It's just this guy is out of his gourd as a high-minded little punk. And I was. And just about everything that I got, I deserved um, because of my own sense of high-mindedness. And uh, that's what they charged me with, and they were right. And I, I wanted to say to one of them at one point, oh my gosh, if that's, is that all you got? Let me give you some more, because I got a whole lot more than that. Um, but that was, that was the big issue. And um, the church that I pastored became the largest church in the city of Ocala, which is not saying a whole lot, because city, uh, Ocala was a small town and all the other Baptist churches were splitting. And um, so I was, I was pastoring you know, the other thing that was not splitting, at least at that moment. And, um, you know, we were just blowing and going. And, and, um, and on one occasion, this man took me out to lunch and uh, we drove around and he told me all of the money that he had and, and all of the land that he owned and, and showed me all the land that he owned. And um, <laughs> uh, we went to this little place to have lunch. It was a little pizza place out on um, Highway 27. And um, they had paper placemats, paper placemats. You know, we're just eating our pizza away, got a paper placemat, and, you know. And so we get through the pizza, and he takes the placemat, and he turns it over. No, it's blank back there. It's blank on the backside of the paper mat, uh, uh, placemat. And, and uh, he says, um, Jimmy, I want to give you this. That is, I want to give the church this. And he wrote on the back of that paper placemat, I want to give you $1 million and 72 acres of land right there, which was right across, I mean, it was the, just the best spot in town, 72 acres, which I, at that moment, thought he owned. Well, 
I remember getting out of that luncheon and calling Susie and telling her what this man had just said to me. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, I pretty much lost my mind. Um, you know, I'm a pastor. And you know, I'm on a, I'm on a little church. Church, you know. It's all for God's glory. And um, I'm going to make my mark. All for God's glory. Well, the elders didn't see it like that, and they were right. And um, I, that, that six-month period that almost killed us, um, we would have session meetings that would start, I forget whether it was 5 p.m. or 6 p.m., but it's not important. We'll just say 6 p.m. We would have session meetings that started at 6 p.m. on, say, a Thursday night, and we wouldn't be done until 2 a.m. in the morning. And we would fight the whole time for eight hours over everything. And um, I, I told you I, I knew Jimmy, Jimmy Latimer and I had a relationship, and I, I'd love to tell you that story, but we don't have time. Um, and so I would call Frank Barker and, and Randy Pope and Jimmy Latimer. You know, I had to listen to me. And try to, uh, R.C. Sproul was just our great, ally at that moment he would call us from all over the country trying to figure out what are you going to do and anyway so finally I just couldn't fight anymore I, I didn't want to fight anymore and I was um eviscerated I was just emptied of of all <clears throat> and there was just so many little factors by this by the way this man who had offered us the one million dollars in 72 acres uh he also stole the only $2,700 that you, Susie and I had. He told us he was going to invest it offshore and he was going to make 14%. And so uh, the only $2,700 we had, I was in a little bank account, and, uh, and I went and got it, $2,700 bills, and gave them to him. And um, we never, well, we did see him again. And when we moved to Memphis, I would continue to call him and ask him to send us our $2,700, and he would keep putting us off. And finally, we'd, we, we got so scared of him that we, um, we said, just keep it. We don't want anything else to do with you. That was about November. We moved up here in March. But he here's, here's what I wanted you to hear, or the, the, kind of the part I wanted you to hear. When we packed up to leave Memphis, Tennessee, excuse me, uh, Ocala, Florida, when we packed up to leave Ocala, Florida, we owned a home at 1315 Northeast 13th Circle. Still there. Um, it was not on the market. It was not sold, it was not rented, and all of our belongings were still inside it, except our clothing, and maybe a book or two, who knows. We walked out the door, locked the door, and had no idea what was going to happen to that house. We drove away in a van that had been loaned to us, a big brown stretch van. We drove away in a stretch van that somebody had loaned us. And Susie was driving a little Toyota station wagon with a dog that I had gotten about six days before we moved out of left town 
the dog was absolutely crazy. And my, my wife is a dog lover, and she'll tell you, the dog was nuts. Where's my wife? Uh, there she is. Um, Hershey. But I was so, it, so out of myself. I, I've said this in public, too. I feel for like six or eight months, I, I feel like Susie ran everything. Because I, I just wasn't there. Um. Remember, as we, were, we, we stopped at a Hardee's to meet some friends on the way out of town who are still our friends, and we kissed and hugged and got in the car and headed off to Memphis. And Gracie, who was 10 years old at the time, she's 45 now, but she was 10 years old at the time, and she was sitting up the front with me, and Susie was driving the other car with Hershey, the dog. And, um, and Gracie said, Daddy, this is a great adventure. We made it to Memphis, and we, um, we moved in with Susie's parents because we had no place else to live. And uh, we were there, um, I don't know, maybe three nights. And I remember going in to pray with them and kiss them goodnight. They were sleeping on a fold-out couch, Gracie and Megan. I don't know whether Emily was in there or not, but... And um, these are words that, that you'll never forget as a father. Gracie looked at me and she said, Daddy, the adventure is over. <laughs> you were not supposed to laugh at that. We didn't have a house. We were in a borrowed van. Our house was sitting in Florida. We had no idea what was going to happen to it. And we had a job that started March the 1st. We got there about the 20th, I think, of February, something like that. And on um, this family that we met at Hardy's to say goodbye to us, the Benzics, they, come up, they, came up the, they drove up here the very next weekend, and we went downtown to go out to supper at the butcher block on, um, on Front Street. It's closed now. But, and as I was coming up Beale Street, about to cross Front Street, a man by the name of Sweetie Dawkins, who had no driver's license and no insurance, came over the hill and bashed me from the driver's side. My... Um, my wife and I butted heads in the front seat, and I, my, the whole side of my eye caved in, and I was in plastic surgery that night. Still have the wires under here, holding my eye orbit together. And I sat down next to a well, and I thought, It's over. Completely disillusioned. Completely broken. And wondering if this thing that I had been doing for 10 years and been in seminary for three was all over. <clears throat> and I was exactly where 
God wanted me to be. Just like Moses. I think I've told some of you this before that I have favorite verses in the, <clears throat> in the scriptures. But um, one of them is in um, Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. And you remember what Jonah did and found himself in the belly of a whale. And, um, and um, he gets spit up on the shore. And the text opens like this. And the word of Yahweh came to Jonah a second time. And then there is this. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. But in love, you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. I hope somebody read that to Moses. Although it wasn't written for another 1,500 years. But in the midst of all of that disillusionment and rejection and disorientation. I remember sitting in the pews on Sunday mornings at Central Church and, and feeling like, what am I doing here? It was like I was living in a bowl of jello, thinking that it was all over. And it wasn't. Moses felt like that. It wasn't for Moses either. And it isn't for you. I don't know what you've done. Um, but it's not all over. It was for your welfare that he authored this great bitterness. But he remembered the covenant made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and delivered my life from the pit of destruction. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. Oh, my dear brother and sister in Christ, feast on it. We have for 35 years thinking that I was, and Moses thinking, after what I've done, he would ever use me again? And sitting next to that well in the midst of his depression and rejection and disillusionment, he was right where God wanted him to be. So was I. Having surgery that night, 
a busted orbit. And so are you. Our Father, would you, would you refresh your people by this image of Moses sitting next to a well, feeling sorry for himself because things have turned out so badly. And would you, um, would you remind your people that you oftentimes do things and give us bitterness for our own welfare so that you might in love deliver our lives from the pit of destruction, promising us that you have cast all your sin, all our sin, behind your back. Encourage your people with the model of Moses tonight. Do that for Jesus' sake. We pray in his name. Amen. Okay, guys, there's a dessert and it's free.